Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to all of our guests here today. We've got a pretty good full group here, and also those joining us online. It's, uh, sorry we can't, you can't be here with us, but uh, we certainly understand and uh, look forward to all of us being together at some point. Hopefully by the end of the, the summer, maybe as we approach the fall holy days, some of this will shift. I was just uh, speaking with um, one of our camp directors this past week, and uh, in his state, they're actually having an uptick in uh, COVID cases. So um, it could be those varietal strains or whatever that are happening. But uh, uh, we'll see how the camp goes. We're planning for full activity camps throughout the summer. And Pinecrest looks really good this year. Uh, no one else has scheduled a camp, so we'll have the run of the entire place. They have a brand-new dorm they haven't let us use for the last, uh, I don't know, five years or four years or so. wouldn't be brand-new if it's four years old, but... They're going to let us use that this year, so we're going to put all the boys in that big thing, probably 80-plus boys. That should be a madhouse. <laughs> Four different dorms within one big building. Same thing we do with, with the, the girls at Pinecrest, but uh looks like it's going to be a fun summer of camps, and so I'm glad we're able to do that again. I just have a few announcements before I move into the message. Uh, Feast of Tabernacles updates. Uh, general housing begins for... Uh, the United States, also Canada, at 11 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time tomorrow. Uh, so everyone can begin making their uh, reservations, except for those two places, uh, Panama City Beach and Lake Junaluska. Uh, they have asked that, that they that those going there not make their reservations until 11 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Tuesday, April 20th. Uh, just They just need the, that time to give uh, uh, to take in the higher reservation traffic. There's a wait list already for Anchorage. I heard that closed in about 14 minutes. And uh, Panama City Beach as well, as big as that is, it might be because of social distancing. They have the counts way down on that. Those are the only two this thus far that we know that are having uh, uh, wait lists. So as conditions changed, uh, it is hopeful that more people will be allowed to be approved, uh, but there's no guarantee at this time. The feast coordinators of those sites will send out an update if you're on a waiting list in early May. Uh, members should not make any housing reservations at those sites, though, until they are approved for those sites. So it could change, especially as state regulations and distancing and so on change. The, they may be able to take more on those sites. Remember those ongoing coronavirus implications. Uh, that uh, that they want us to keep in mind as as we start making housing reservations. If you put down any kind of advanced deposits, on especially condos and houses, getting them back may be more difficult. Make sure that you understand the cancellation uh, warnings for anything that you're going to commit to tomorrow. Uh, also for airfare, before you book any airfare to a fee site, uh, make sure you understand the, the policy of the airlines for their cancellations as well. Uh, if an airline provides a cancellation insurance, that might be a good idea. Make sure of uh, the allowable parameters that they have to receive a refund if you have to ask for one. Just be very cautious before you make any of those kind of financial commitments before um, um, making your housing reservations and, and, and flight reservations. Our uh, Sabbath study this afternoon will begin, well, it'll probably begin a little bit after 2.30. I usually like to try to get... Uh, Give some time for people to eat. So if lunch begins at 2.30, which it will be, I'll probably start around quarter till or so. I get I get uh, chastised all the time at home for eating with my food in my mouth, so I don't want to put you through that. Uh, so we'll give you some time to eat and then maybe start around quarter till. And it will be an extension of the sermon that I'll give in a few moments on godliness and how to be or why it's so important to be godly in an ungodly world. Uh, I gave you that... Uh, uh, announcement last week and also an updated email this past week of the sections of scripture between first peter one and first peter three that we'll be going through i've got those broken down into seven sections and i'll just read through them make some comments and then we can share comments between ourselves as, as well fellowship hall again will be open for lunches at two thirty. please remember to keep those within families and uh, make sure that you honor any of the social distancing that we have in place. Also, our next Challenger study will be on May 15th. So for the young adults, May 15th for our next Challenger study. I would like to start today in uh, Acts chapter 17, if you wouldn't mind turning there. We'll read verses 16 through 25. Uh, we're familiar with this story. Prior to uh, chapter 17, 
wherever it seemed the Apostle Paul taught, there was an uprising and a commotion. And those who were with his, his entourage and others were trying to do the best they can to protect Paul. So they sent him down to Athens. And while he was there awaiting the arrival of Timothy and Silas in Athens, he was fascinated by the large number of idols that seemed to just inundate the city, all uh, idols of every kind. Uh, let's begin reading in verse 16 of Acts, verse 17 here. Uh, in, in our in approach to the subject today, it's good to understand this from the perspective, especially of idolatry. And you've, we've talked about this before, that idolatry today is so much more than uh, idols of wood, stone, gold, silver. It really has much more to do with any any belief or understanding or perspective or view of God that is based on human terms, not on God's terms. Any false god of any kind, and that could be an idea. It could be one's job. It could be uh, any number of scores of religions uh, that, that all claim to be Christian today, but all operate very, very differently, uh, and all seem to uh, worship a different god uh, in their practices and so on. But I would like to lay this down as a foundation before moving into that concept and discussing it. So, verse sixteen. Uh, now, while Paul waited for them, this is Silas and uh, Timothy at Athens, uh, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Given over it means not just hit one here and there. It seemed like it was the, uh, the, the thinking and the culture of the entire city, a uh, very open-minded Greek academic approach that accepted any variant of God and uh, and and gave every one of them equal credibility. Verse 17, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So he was, when it says therefore, it means because the the city was so given to idols, he would he would come from that perspective of the, the message of the one true God. Uh, and it seemed to fly in the face of, of the entire mindset of the city, where there could be multiple different versions of God, what makes your God the God. We face this today when we talk about absolute truth or uh, a true verbal understanding of the Scriptures. You read it, do what it says. Today people think that's just an individual interpretation based upon our own personal truth, our own personal perspectives. This was, again, much of what was underlying uh, Athens here. Verse 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? There wasn't much credibility given to him. You can also see a sense of disdain for somebody coming in uh, with these kinds of views. They were they were open to foreign other gods. They loved learning about new things. We'll read that in a moment. But for some reason, they didn't give Paul much uh, credibility here. Uh, others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, so notice who this group is. This is Epicureans and Stoics. These are philosophers uh, of the of Greece at that time. Both of these uh, uh, practices of philosophy were about two to three hundred years old, and they had very varying differences. Um, uh, Stoics. Let's go to the Epicureans first. The Epicureans were followers of uh, a Greek philosopher named Epicurus, uh, about 300, existed about 300 years earlier than this time. And they believed in the immortality of the soul. They denied God as creator. And they did not believe that any of the gods were involved in any human affairs whatsoever. And uh, their whole approach was, was, was based on this. So this is like one side of, a, of a, uh, uh, an extreme that were arguing and 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 asking Paul uh, to explain what what his point was the stoics and we use that word today to talk about people who have you know almost show no emotion the stoics were followers of a philosopher named Zeno uh who who taught on a porch or a step the word uh uh stoa means in Greece or in Greek a porch or a step uh, a step on a temple or a, a building uh, they believed in creation, that God did create all things, but they all, they believed that all things, including God, would continually exist under something they called fatal necessity. That everybody is subject to fate. Things just happen, 
and you've got to be able to handle them when they do. Thus, all emotions have to be brought under control in response to fate. If you want a uh, persona for each of these groups, I thought of uh, Dr. McCoy and Mr. Spock. I don't know how accurate that is. I mean, all metaphors break down at some point, but this, the McCoy hot-blooded and I got an opinion and I want to, you know, and we have to think only based upon the facts and these kinds of things happen, a very realist um, and, and sometimes very dramatic. And then there's the stoic Mr. Spock where everything's based on logic, no emotions whatsoever. So this is kind of what Paul's facing. Both of these groups are asking him to explain <laughs> what he, his message was. Now, both were very critical of what he was saying, and, but also very curious about Paul's new views, and uh, then they took him to the, uh, the, the Areopagus. This is Mars Hill. Uh, the Areopagus used to be a place where there was a court that it heard cases and so on. It became kind of a, a, a center for government uh, in, in the city of Athens. Right now, it's not much more than a big rocky crag and an outcropping, but there is a there is a plaque there on the side of a, of a wall at the Areopagus that actually has Paul's comments here uh, on that plaque. Um, let me just read through these now. Um, uh, where did I leave off here? Okay, uh, verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all of the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new, some new thing. Verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very uh, religious. Uh, Verse 23, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, this is uh, referencing to one word, uh, sebasma, sebasma, I should say, S-E-B-A-S-M-A in the Greek. And it literally is uh, an object, a shrine, uh, an altar, a temple, a statue, uh, to which reverence is directed, thus idols. he goes on to say, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So uh, not only were they uh, establishing shrines and idols and so on to gods that they were aware of, they also made sure they wanted, I guess they wanted to cover them all. Whatever unknown God there is, we will put up a, an altar for him as well. Paul says, therefore, the one whom you worship, now this is a different word. This is re- referencing the action of that reverence, not the object of it. And it's critical for us as we go forward in, 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 this, in this study, in this message, and the discussion this afternoon. It's the Greek word, this word worship is translated from the Greek word eusebeo, E-U-S-E-B-E-O. And again, it refers to the action of reverence, the outward exercise of piety, which to many of us today would think that that's just a big show. A lot of that is just from what we've experienced in our culture and in history. It's, Paul's actually referring to something much deeper here. Um, but in, in calling their uh, worship, their actions of worship, Eusebio, he's not saying that that's what they were doing. He's simply saying the outward action. You'll see how that's separated from... Uh, the outward action of worship is not necessarily toward the eternal God, the one true God. It could be used, that word has been used uh, to refer to worship of all kinds, uh, reverent action. So he says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, oh, I repeated that, sorry, verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord. Did I skip a verse? Yes. Okay, let me go back. I'm sorry. Therefore, the one uh, whom you worship, uh, without knowing him, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, this this is a something that um, uh, we easily slip into. Uh, Isaiah addressed this in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. God wanted to tell us we don't. Create a place for God. 
We don't determine or define God, and we don't determine or define how we worship him. He does. He creates a place for himself. He has standards and directives for how to worship him, and we aren't supposed to veer from that, although it's very easy to do. Physical human beings are focused on what they see, what they hear, what they can touch, something that's tangible to them, and it's difficult for us to focus solely spiritually on our connection with God, but that's how he has to be worshipped, John 4, 4, John 4, 24, in spirit and in truth. So God is God regardless of any human perspective or opinion of him, even within the church of God. We can't allow the academic thinking of the world around us or the, the increase in our de- uh, dependency on science and research, all that we can do with our own intellect, to allow that to displace how God wants us to worship him, how God wants us to define him by his word. Uh, and it, it makes every difference in the world when you look at an outward exercise of piety. Humans cannot define God or decide for themselves how to worship him. Verse 25 now. Paul says, nor is he worshipped. Here the word is used again, worship, but it's a different word. Nor is he worshipped. This is the Greek word therapuo. That's uh, that's spelled T-H-E-R-A-P-E-U-O, therapuo. That means to serve or to attend. It's translated most often healing, uh, but it means to service or attend to somebody is sick. In this case, servicing or attending to God, ministering to God. This is given from the standpoint of what most people think outward worship is, a, a means of appeasing a God. Uh, you see this in the Egyptian background, Egyptian thought, and what many people, how many people think about God today. Oh no, I'm having a bad situation in my life. What did I do to offend God? How can I appease him so that he blesses me instead? Or thinking that because I do wonderful things, great things, that God will shower blessings upon me. This is based in wrong thinking. This is not the God of Scripture. Does God bless? Yes. But he blesses who he decides to bless. He has mercy on who he will have choose to have mercy. That's his choice. It's not something that we can direct or force his hand in. You've heard me say this before, but I get a little nervous when I when I hear people say, You need to you need to get down on your knees and demand that God keeps his promises to you. I go <laughs> I don't know what God you're praying to, but that's not what I read from the scriptures. All right, we can we can certainly cite his promises, but he's the one that has all the whole plan in his mind and everybody in it and trying to save every human he can. And we know we decided to defer to his plan, not ours. This is not trying to get God to do what we want him to do. It's completely the opposite. And that needs to be at the heart of whatever outward uh, acts of, of uh, reverence that we have toward him. Um, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. We just came out of the the uh, spring holy days where we should have reviewed all of those chapters in and around Exodus, especially the plagues, and recognized how God was not just taken on Pharaoh, which was, is a complete and utter mismatch, but he was also proving himself as God against all of their multiple gods there as well. Very similar situation here in Athens. Any God goes. We'll bring them all in and we'll try to control them all so that we will continue to be blessed and not cursed. These, these things that Paul was looking at around them, that they were worshiping, were lifeless blocks of wood and stone, gold and silver. And they existed only in the worship and services that the Athenians were giving them. So you, we aren't to be afraid of any of these. We're not to, you know, think of them as as something that could cause us problem. Only if we give them any sense of credence whatsoever. Only if we look to them to serve them as we would the eternal God. The Athenians were so blinded by their pride in knowledge, and this is this is affecting us very much today, especially as the the society itself becomes much more educated. We we tend to lean on our own intellect. Not, not that intellect is bad, but it is not revelation. 
And and we, who who Paul describes as the weak, the not-so-wise, the not-so-noble of the world, that's why God is working with us. So we won't rely upon our own intelligence against God's revelation. But if we continue to have this academic approach to studying the Scriptures— and, or our academic approach toward uh, interacting with God, we're, we're a family. He's our father. We, we, it can't just be based upon book knowledge. There's got to be something deeper. This is a growth of character, not of knowledge. Like Paul said, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Whenever we're having that issue where we think, you know, we can't argue with the theologians and we feel bad about that. Or I can't argue with a Ph.D. in theology or I never went to Ambassador College. That doesn't matter. What matters is character. God grants the ability to understand and to know. Character will keep us from being puffed up by that knowledge. It's, it's incredibly important when it comes down to acts of worship. Um. Again, the Athenians were so blinded by their knowledge and their lust for information. Paul refers to it here, just wanting to hear anything. Um, In their open-mindedness, accepting all things, they accepted all objects of worship and all actions of reverence, including an altar to God that they didn't even know, a God they did not even know. Paul saw this as an opportunity, though, and, and began speaking from it. Let's look at verse 26 through 30 now. And he, God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all, uh, on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Notice this. God is the one that sets all this up. Uh, he is the one that allows men to do what men can do. He, he's the one that directs all of that. Um, pre-appointed times and boundaries is a reference to God determining our time, how long we live here. When we're born, he brings all that about. He he manages all that. And our limitations, what we can learn, what we can do, where we can go, he establishes those boundaries. It's not the reverse. We don't put boundaries on God by by creating what we think an image of him is. We don't we don't box him into this idea that our limited minds can actually hold and understand all of his greatness and all of his power. The very sliver of understanding that we have of who God is isn't enough. We have to keep learning. It's all based upon following his spirit into all truth. We have to keep learning about him. Whenever we decide this far and no more, we're boxing God in. I'm comfortable with my understanding of God right where I'm at, and I'm not going any further. That's idolatry, something the Bible warns us about. Verse 27, um, so that they should seek the Lord, this is humanity, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. So it's not just about seeking. It's also about groping. This, 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 uh, shows us that this is an effort on our part and a a work, something that we have to be always diligent to keep doing. We have to grope and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. They were describing the influence of a God, the poets. He didn't specifically refer to which ones. But then he says this, for we are also his offspring. That's one thing to define God in that way uh, that Paul was describing here, uh, that we live and move and have our being. It's another thing completely to be his offspring. Even those who, who believe in creation and that they are created beings do not understand that pathway to being his offspring, to be in in his eternal spiritual family forever, and that's why so much of this is is clouded from the those who are the intellectuals, those who are the uh, the academics. Verse twenty nine. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Notice here he's comparing these idolatrous practices with the divine nature. Uh, because we'll, we'll understand that 
as we go forward as well a little better in this message, the difference between worshiping an idol and worshiping the divine nature. I mean, one is simply service, no point, uh, no growth from that, no being like the idol, unfortunately, because they can't see idols and they can't hear. Unfortunately, those who worship them do the same, can't see or hear. Isaiah, Christ said that. Uh, there's something in this reference to the divine nature and why it is worshipped that we need to understand. Um, verse 30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. All men everywhere. This expands the, the purpose of God well beyond the boundaries or limitations of Israel. It's going to the entirety of the world. And Paul was making that statement. These objects of idolatry, again, were wood and stone, gold and so on. But today, they are not limited to wood, stone, gold, silver, but they are still human constructs. Any human construct of God apart from his word is idolatry. And the actions by which these idols are worshipped back then and even today are called piety. Look how pious he is. He's praying to St. Christopher or wearing a medal of St. Christopher around his neck. Pious, reverent, even called godly. There goes a godly man. And look at him in his godliness and all of his outward gestures and the things that he does and the things that he does to worship God. But these things only work to further separate humans from their creator and hide from them the reason he made them in the first place. God is one. He only determines who knows him and how he is worshipped. The resulting outward reverence from that point is not an attempt to appease him, but a sincere effort to be like him. This is not well understood, even within most of Christianity. Let's go to 1 Timothy 3 here. Read here how Paul calls this a mystery. Um, a mystery that he says uh, there is no controversy on this. Everybody or most everybody does not understand this mystery. What is that mystery? First Timothy 3.16. And without controversy, uh, without any argument, everybody would agree, without controversy, uh, great is the mystery of godliness. And what follows here is a description very critical to understanding what it was and what it is to this day. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. We will come back a little bit later and go through these, these six um, qualifiers that Paul uses to define godliness. But what does it mean to be godly? And, and what is a mystery about it? Why is it concealed? This uh, Today is the 10th message in our series on the mysteries of God. As we've gone through each one of these, and I told you as we started to go through these, these would be related. And uh, it, it, the, the, even the six things that we just read will, are related to things we will continue to cover as they are also mysteries. Um, we have learned how special these revelations are to us, though. This is not something we dug out. We didn't learn them by our intellect or our hard work. God revealed them to us. And as we see that others are not revealed these things, we recognize and understand our special position before God and what we need to aspire to that others don't need to aspire to. Um, very few understand these mysteries and aspire to live by them. We are not here to condemn them or put them down in any way, only to recognize how special these mysteries are to us and uh, what that does for us, with our relationship with God and with one another. We need to learn to aspire to live by them. Today we will review the mystery of godliness. Okay, what, let's look at these two, two things. Number one, what is godliness? And number two, what makes godliness a mystery? Godliness is translated from the Greek word, the, the word he uses here is eusebia. E-U-S-E-B-E-I-A. There, there are many variants off of this uh, 
but they're, they're, this word is at the heart and core of all of them. It means to live reverently. It means to be devoted uh, in one's religious behavior. It, it, it really literally means externalized piety. So what you're seeing someone do or what you're doing outwardly as a result or as a desire to worship God, be reverent and be devoted to God. The word God, though, is not in this. This is interesting. This is called godliness, but there's no word theos in that. There is one reference to the word uh, to theos and Eusebia being uh, connected. We'll review that a bit later. But the fact that God is not a part of the word Eusebia helps us to understand that it's a much more general description. The scriptural context is what determines whether one's irreverent behavior is appropriately directed. But Paul used this, uh, even what we just described in Acts 17, he used the derivation of this word to describe what they were doing in their worship of their false deities. The only place where theos, or the the word God, uh, occurs uh, with a form of eusebes is when Paul uses the word theosebeia to elevate the substance of good works over the emptiness of ornamentation. So what's going on inside matters much more than, to God than what's going on on the outside. Let's look at that here. It's the first Peter, first Timothy chapter two. First Timothy chapter two and verse ten. Uh, he's speaking here with respect to women. He says, but, uh, let's, let's back up and lead into it. verse eight. I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or uh, pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness. This is Theosabea with good works. So much what's going on inside much more important than what's going on on the outside. And in fact, What's on the outside should be reflecting what's going on in the inside. I mean, if you miss that, it's 1 Timothy 2 and verse 10. 1 Timothy 2.10. Yosebea is used 15 times in Scripture. We won't go through all those references. There are some common themes there that we'll touch on. But it's used once by Luke in in Acts uh, that we just read in chapter 17. Four times in Peter's epistles. Uh, which we'll also discuss in the study afterwards. I may, I'll make reference to one of those as well. But ten times uh, in Paul's pastoral epistles to, to Timothy and to Titus. So it was very important for a, a minister or a, an elder at the time to understand and caring for a congregation and teaching and leading a congregation this this concept of outward piety, this 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 uh, your actions in worship of God, what should they look like and why. Let's look at these uh, these common themes now. Uh, Timothy, First Timothy two and verses one and two. Now, uh, therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. Reverence here uh, is is what is is is. Uh, uh, the word reverence here is translated from the Greek word uh, semnotes, S-E-M-N-O-T-E-S. That means literally decency or dignity, a uh, sense of seriousness about how one carries oneself. It, it, it refers to a majestic decorum, a recognition that you are nobility, that you are royalty, and you have a responsibility to act in a certain way, not, not to appease people but to as a reflection of who you know you are. And, and this is what he's talking about here. And he's putting it in the context of rulers and governments uh, because they can have a, a, a big influence on, on, uh, on how we can live godly in, in, our, in our daily lives. But godliness can also influence them. Romans 13 is just a, a case in point. If we o- obey them, if we respect them, and that's part of the dignified way that we carry ourselves and respect that God put them in those positions of authority. They can be a huge influence on us. And what he's saying here, he, he describes godliness as being quiet, being peaceable, being respectful of others, 
This is an aspect of godliness. It's not about the flamboyant acts or even how we dress in in flamboyant priestly costumes or something. It has much more to do with what's going on inside. It's quiet. It's not it's not just a you know, sharing your belief with everybody you come across, like you're trying to push your ideas on them or or call them out or something, or try to show that you know more than they do. That's disdainful. That's not love. Uh, godliness is quiet. Godly, godliness is peaceable. And godliness is respectful. So when we think of godliness, think of it on those terms. The second commonality in the use of the word Eusebius is, is um, when Paul likens it to uh, uh, bodily exercise. Let's for, turn to 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4, we'll read verses 6 through 11. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. If you instruct the brethren, speaking to Timothy, writing to Timothy, in these things you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. We'll, we'll comment on that in a bit as well. Um, but reject profane and old wives' fables, silly myths and stories and you know that may seem cute but aren't necessarily profitable, and exercise yourself toward godliness. Exercise yourself toward godliness. Verse 8, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that is that, that now is, and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Command and teach. Godliness is spiritual training in the nature of God. It has substance. It's not just an outward show. And it's not, again, not something to attract attention or something that we do to convince others of what we believe in. It has more to do with emulating God and knowing that we need practice in this. We need to be trained in this, especially coming from our humble roots. God called us. He he placed us in his elect. He's working with us to remain faithful and loyal to him. But we have to emulate him. We have to train to be like him. That's what our outward gestures should be. That's what our reverence should look like. And that should embed everything that that we do in worship of God. Paul says it's profitable for this life and the next. In many ways in this life, showing an example to others, respecting those in authority, teaching and and rearing our children to be in in the same path of, of, of developing godly behavior, manners, and so on. It's profitable in this life, but especially in the next we know that we've got a long way to go before we can be help, a help to Jesus Christ at his return. We have to sew those jewels into our wedding garment, those jewels of character. Well, character is not something that's simply knowledge-based. That has knowledge with it, but it, there's practice that comes into character. It's something, this is how God's law is written into our hearts and to who we actually are by applying it and doing it. Um, and that prepares us for the life to come. All successful athletes train for their sport. Um, I don't know if, how many here have ever run like a 5K or a marathon. You, you practice quite a bit before that. You don't just jump in and eat some fettuccine Alfredo and for carbs and go running. That's a people who love the show The Office got that reference. <laughs> Very funny episode. Uh, athletes train. For success. So do Christians. We have to train. You can't just know something and not put it into practice. Okay, you can't just you can't just recognize or read the the nature of God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and not have a desire to emulate that. To worship God for those things is to emulate him in it. You've heard these athletes being referred to as role models and idols for young boys or girls growing up. Wrong direction. But they know exactly what that means. I want to be like Mike. Remember that? Michael Jordan? I want to be like Mike. It was a song. 
not now. He's like 50 years old. and But when he was really good, everyone wanted to be like Michael Jordan. Anyway, that was the concept. It's the same with God. Though, If you worship God, if you love God, you want to be like God, especially if you know he's calling you into his royal family to live forever. We need to be practicing those things now. A spiritual workout. That's what godliness is. It's a spiritual workout that we go through every day. And it's a workout that aligns our human spirit. It's not a physical workout. It's a spiritual workout that aligns our human spirit with God's spirit. And its effect is that it conditions and coordinates, as as physical exercise does for our body, spiritual exercise, godliness, conditions and coordinates our inner being. In, In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Paul wrote this, uh, do you not know that those who run in a race uh, uh, all run? I'm sorry, I read that again. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. That's not just done in the moment of the race. It's done in preparation for that race as well. Uh, perfect practice makes perfect. I remember so many coaches telling me that. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 5, Paul wrote this, 2 Timothy 2, 5, And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Knowing what those rules are is is everything. If you're doing cross-country racing, which I know some of you have done, if you don't know where the path is, you're going to lose. <laughs> You've got to have some prep in advance to know where you're going to be running. Also, you can't, just because you might be a good athlete in one sport, say basketball, doesn't mean you're going to be a great athlete in another sport, say football. you got to understand the rules, how the game is played. And you got to compete according to the rules or you'll fail. Um, this is really interesting from the standpoint of what Paul's saying, though. Note how Paul qualifies this training. How, what do we train? Where are the training rules? Where, where's the instruction manual in the support of the game we're about to play? Well, that's the next one. Uh, this is 1 Timothy 6 and verse 3. 1 Timothy 6, 3, and we'll read through verse 11. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness... Notice that there is a doctrine, there is a teaching that accords with godliness, that helps us to understand what it is and how to practice it. And if we don't do this, verse 4, he is proud knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. You think he might have been reflecting on his time in Athens and that this is what he saw and how he described them? Too often when you see arguments going on uh, between theologians, it has nothing to do with God's will. It has to do with whose perspective on the scripture is, is, is more cleanly and uh, competitively argued. And all it does is lead to division and strife. That's why you have so many divisions today in religions all over the world, especially Christianity. Verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. So you can have godliness without being content inside. You you have godly behavior. You're, you're acting godly on the outside, but inside you're not settled. Something's not happening in there. Godliness is a doctrine. And the doctrine is the words of Christ. The words of your Bible. Anyone who claims to be a Christian and doesn't read and study their Bible is not a Christian. Not by definition of the Bible, anyway. Today, you know what? You know how people describe being Christian? Christians, how they describe it? The word, one word, nice. Just be nice. Just be nice. Lots of nice people in this world, still. Lots of nice people. But they're not Christians by the definition of what the scriptures say. Those who follow Jesus Christ in spirit into all truth. Romans 8. Many don't understand that even. This word wholesome is interesting here. I wanted to comment on this. 
It's translated from the Greek word hugianio, hugianio, H-U-G-I-A-N-I-O. And it means to be sound. It means to be healthy or, or pure. It means to be uncorrupted. So that can only be a reference to truth. If we're going to be wholesome uh, in, our, in our godliness, it has to be based upon truth. This is part of that purification process that John talks about in John 3. And also we know what truth is. It's based solely on the Word of God, as Christ said in John 17, 17. Now, this is interesting that um, godliness can be with or without contentment, with or without an inner peace that is forged by the rule of God within. Um, let's, I'm going to finish reading through verse 11 here, and then we'll go to Colossians 3. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Those lusts that we pursue in this age can steal contentedness from us. And those lusts are pushed all the time in every aspect of media, in the economic nature of the entirety of the world, especially our country, that we think that what the things that we have are what make us content. It's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. Verse 11, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, he says here. Let's go to Colossians 3 now, as I said we would. Colossians chapter 3, and read verses 12 through 7. Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved... Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. He's describing the actions of godliness here. The word of God applied in our everyday lives. In quiet and peaceful ways. Not, not, not flamboyantly. Verse 14, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly, dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts, to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father uh, through Him. Again, godliness, these outward actions can be done without that inner peace, without the contentment of knowing we're doing what is right, knowing that we are truly emulating God in here, in the heart, sincerely, not just in what we do in our actions. It's not just about Sabbath keeping on the outside or holy day going, or any of the things that we do, washing feet, whatever, if what's inside is not doing what you're doing to emulate God, to be like him, there's a disconnect there. And you're going to have this lack of peace in your heart because you haven't settled it inside. You haven't developed the love of God enough to want to be like him. You don't understand his invitation to be part of his eternal family. And that's going to give you problems, guilts within that aren't going to give you peace. And those outward gestures aren't going to fill you. They're, not, they're going to be meaningless. Totally meaningless. Yet many do them. Godliness is to be sincerely pursued. It has a doctrine. We should study it. We should keep it. It should be our life, our practice. The fourth commonality here in this word Eusebius is back in Second Timothy. Second <clears throat> Timothy Chapter 3 and verse 5. I said these are, for Paul at least, these are in the pastoral epistles. And this is one of them. Second Timothy 3 and verse 5. We'll just take it out of context. 
having a form of godliness, but denying its power. We can have a form of godliness. We can have all these external things that we do and everybody sees. God sees the heart. And he wants to know and understand what the motivation is for us doing these things. Is it based on a love and an appreciation for who he is? Is is it based upon what his word describes his goal is for us? His purpose is to be in his holy family, his, his children forever? That's the motivation for doing what we do. We don't just do it because we do it. It's our tradition or it's what my parents did or their parents did or their parents did. We have to make that commitment internally. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. So the outward gestures and all the things that are going on that looks like somebody is, you know, very pious, uh, very uh, much in awe of God on the outside. In time, we recognize and see that that's not their motivation. When we see that, we're not supposed to call them out. We're not supposed to change them. Paul says, from such people turn away. Because it's an individual decision. It's not something we can force on others or convince others to do. Godliness can be superficial. An outward form without inner power. It is possible to feign godliness. Even to the point where we're deceiving ourselves, feigning godliness. You know, the, the, I'll just give you this reference, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, is where the Pharisee and, the, and the, the publican are praying at the same time to God. The publican's afar off, wouldn't lift his eyes up into heaven uh, and, and just re- recognize he wasn't even worthy to be there. The Pharisee thought of himself as righteous. Why? Based on his outward actions. I, I fast twice a day. Not like this publican. I don't do what this publican does. He justified himself by comparing what he did with others who did not do these things. He was basing his devotion to God based solely on what he was doing on the outside. But his outward piety was fueled by his disdain for others. You see that in his actions or his ideas for the publican. It's a parable, but Christ is explaining this. It wasn't based upon his reverence toward God, but his desire to elevate himself above others. That mindset of superiority that John talks about in 1 John 2. Brethren, how we live outwardly is important to God. Inner character influences outward behavior. You can't have it on your heart without having it in what you do. But it is possible to do it without having it. Our, our outward practice should not be absent of inner reverence. I get, uh, I get, uh, asked this a lot. Um, the, the best example I can think of that when we come before God in the court of His holy convocation, we dress in our best. Some people think that we're parading ourselves as a result, but that's not it at all. That in the heart, we recognize where we're at and we dress in respect of our host, God, and his purpose for the occasion. The, the latter reflects reverence toward God. The former suggests disdain for God and others. It's easier to appear godly than it is to truly be godly, but we must make sure we're both. Um, our next one is in Second Peter 1, verse 2. Second Peter 1 and verse 2. I'll try to speed up here. There's a lot more to discuss on this that we'll go through in this study. Second Peter 1 and verse 2. Second Peter 1, 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, the, of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Remember what Paul said? Paul said, compared empty idolatry worship to worshiping the divine nature. So we don't, it's not like trying to be like an idol or appease an idol. This is about trying to be like God in his divine nature. 
He wants us to practice this. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, verses 5 through 11, he gives us this process, starting with faith that ends in love. He is love, so that we can learn to be like him. And notice one of the stages here. Um, in making our calling and election sure, uh, verses 6 and 7, to knowledge, we're to add self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance or patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. Now, this our attitude toward God is what underpins our attitude toward men. You know, John said that we... This first John four, he said that we we love because we first loved God. If you want an opportunity and ability to love others, you only have to look at how God loves us and emulate that love, sacrifice, graciousness, kindness, mercy, patience, all these things. As He is patient, faithful, and merciful toward us, we are to emulate Him in treasuring and preserving relationships with others with those same skills, those same attributes. Again, we love because he first loved us. This process of moving from starting with our belief and confidence in God to what God is, love, what a critical step there is godliness, our outward reverence toward him. The sixth one is in Second Peter 3 and verse 11. I'll just read that one because we're going to go through that in the study. He's talking about, and I'll summarize for this in the study as we go through it. The, he's talking about the age, the end, the end time, and uh, how God has acted in the past, how he will do so in the future. And what we know is coming in chapter 3, how does that end? He says, therefore, since these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Everything that we study in, in prophecy, everything that we see coming, good and bad, should relate back to our conduct. It should relate back to our practice of godliness in this age. Knowing what God has to reveal to us, the desire to be like God should be the basis for all of our works of faith, as James describes, James chapter 2. And and Peter also said, 1 Peter 1 and verse 16, we won't turn there, but he said, Be holy, for I am holy. That statement of itself, so short, so concise, tells us why we are to be have godliness and practice godliness. He said, actually quoting from Leviticus 11, 19, and 20 there. Outward displays of piety and veneration to false gods are misdirected attempts to appear devout. But true godliness is a humble effort to emulate the true God by his command to live as he lives. What a privilege. And what a responsibility. It is conduct and behavior, godliness. Conduct and behavior that stems from God's Holy Spirit within us. And this is what makes godliness such a mystery for most. What are these outward actions from? Why Why do these people believe this so much that they act this way? What's, what's going on there? Back in 1 Timothy 3, the rest of that verse. I said we would go back there. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16 we read the first part of this, and I, I read through the others, but let's just consider these. Again, where self-directed acts of worship, human choices and decisions for what they will do to worship whatever God they want, they are a means to appease those gods, uh, changing their fate, affecting them, blessing them, cursing them. This is how they appease those gods. But true worship is directed by the Holy Spirit, and it's an exercise to emulate. We have to see the difference there. Without recognizing that difference, we will not understand the mystery of godliness. Paul goes through these things, First Timothy 3, the second portion here. Godliness manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in the glory. What, what do these mean? The word God here in this section, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God, you'll see an asterisk there in most translations. That's not in the Greek. The word God is not there in the Greek. It's assumed based upon the action of godliness. 
But if we were to read this, this is all describing godliness, all six of these things. And what do these things mean? So godliness manifested in the flesh. Who does that point to? Christ. God coming in flesh. God in Jesus was revealed in the flesh. So the flesh can't hinder the Spirit of God. Through godliness, Christ was revealed to all of those. And and it's pages of Scripture and everybody reads this. But he's also revealed in us through godliness, based on the same word, led by the same Spirit. Second one, justified in the Spirit. Jesus was approved before God. Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 9. His sacrifice was approved because he never sinned. He was completely submitted to God the Father, and his sacrifice stood for the forgiveness of all of mankind. When it is their turn to understand that, some not, few in this age. He was approved before God. And it says in in, in Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 9, he said he was approved because of his godly fear. That word is taken from the word Eusebius, the first part of it. It's actually E, I'll spell it, E-U-L-E-B-E-A-I, elubie. It means to be cautious. It means to be circumspect. It means to be one of devout reverence toward God all the time. Our opinions don't matter. Our ideas don't matter. Our experience doesn't matter. None of our intellectual understanding matters. What matters is the reverence toward God. Putting him first all the time in everything and in every thought. That needs to be practiced. We need training in that. That's what godliness is. And who else was justified in spirit? The elect. Those in whom Christ dwells. Those who submit to the Spirit of God within will be justified in spirit, forgiven of past sins, accepted and approved before God, seen by angels. We, we talked about this before, First Peter 1 and verse 12 and other places. It seems like the angels, I'm not calling them skeptical, but are wondering how in the world this is going to work. So God, the, the, the eternal great God that we serve and worship and, and are loyal to, is going to create these physical beings that are like him, and from them he's going to recreate them, and they will be part of the God family. Right now they're below us and they'll be above us. They must wonder how this process is going to work. Well, they saw it in Jesus Christ, and they should be seeing it in us, in our practice of godliness. Spirit being seeing that God from flesh is possible. It's not only possible, it's going to happen. Christ was the first. We will be the first fruits with him. The word angels here is translated from the Greek word agalos, meaning a messenger. So there's another take on this that some will, you'll read this in some commentaries. John the Baptist and his disciples were described with this word angelos. Uh, the Israelite spies that Rahab protected and sent out another way, they were described by this word, angelos, messengers. Even the Logos, who became Jesus the Christ in prophecies referred to in the New Testament, Old Testament prophecies, that word is used as Christ the messenger. Um, the context here might be an indication that Paul was referring to himself and the other apostles as taking that message themselves. And by doing that, uh, uh, seen by angels, they became witnesses for Christ and what he did. Because number four here moves into preached among the Gentiles. This is a commission given to Paul, but Peter had experience with that in, in Acts 10 with Cornelius. Uh, there is evidence of God's uh, plan to go beyond just the nation of Israel, preaching among the Gentiles. Number five here is believed on in the world. world. This is not just the effectiveness of, of the messengers sent to them, the apostles and others, evangelists. This has to do with a revelation that God's working in them. I, I It frustrates me that we think that all God needs is a, is a man with incredible skills in evangelism, and man, everyone's going to come rushing to the door. This has nothing to do with that. Any man that God chooses can be an evangelist if God sends that man, or woman even, 
to the people he knows he's working with. How does any of us know that? How does any man or woman understand who those people are? God does. And he can send them there, and then there will be growth. It has nothing to do with our skill and ability. It's all about God. Believed on in the world, God is working with others outside of Israel to call them into the elect. We've seen that. It's been our experience in this age. Evidence of God's Spirit working with others is clear today. And then lastly, received up into glory. Also a reference to Christ. Resurrected to a spirit existence. That's our destiny as well. Why? Why is godliness manifested in the flesh? justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Why? So that others could follow Christ. It's the whole point. It's the whole point. Jesus Christ is the example for godliness, as Paul lays out here. But he is also the power within each of God's elect so that they can also become sons of God. We read that in Romans 8. For those that are not led by his spirit, they can't understand that. For them, it is a mystery. The reverent behavior of God's elect is a dignified, active effort to emulate God. Godliness is defined by God's word and is fueled by the inner power of his Holy Spirit to grow our faith from patience to brotherly love and train us to serve at Christ's side when he returns. We'll expand on this further in our discussion, probably in about a half an hour.